That's a 68% reduction in the price of this house for a person that uses Bitcoin as their unit of account. 68, the house price went down by 68% in the Bitcoiners world, but in the fiat person's world, the price went up by a, by 100%. It's twice as much, right? This is why people can't understand this because a person who's looking at this that just looks at Bitcoin as being some made up Mario coin internet money is, is looking at this and saying, oh, if I would have just been able to buy a house back in 2020, I'd be, I'd have 500,000 bucks if I levered it, you know, if I levered up, I would have $500,000 in my bank account, right? That, that's what the, that's what the person, that's what the no coiner is telling themselves. They're being rope-a-doped into this old legacy system by the numbers and what they think is increase in buying power. But for the Bitcoiner, they're looking at this and they're saying, I do not want to move from the house that I'm in right now. I don't want to buy the, the bigger house. I don't want to buy because the value of this thing is going to get cheaper by 68% every four years. Wow. <laughs> it's yeah. it's mind-blowing. What is up, Sats fans? So glad to be back here on Swan Signal Live. It's been about a year since I handed the reins over to the amazing Sam Callahan, who has been keeping the show up uh, all of the past year. We're getting close to this show uh, having its uh, four-year anniversary in just a couple of months, which is really exciting that we've kept this thing going for that long. And I hope it is uh, a great resource for you uh, on macro and all all things Bitcoin uh, as you you know live your life inside that rabbit hole. Uh, I, I tweeted uh, the other day that I this is about my eighth year. I'm about to come up with my eighth year in the rabbit hole, and I'm never leaving. This is my new home, and I'm happy to be here. Speaking of homes, uh, Pacific Bitcoin is a great conference. Uh, it's it's the most fun conference I think. It's the most fun that I have been to personally. I've heard that over and over again as well from many Bitcoiners. Uh, you should check out Pacific Bitcoin this year. It's going to be even bigger and better, but we'll still maintain that kind of homey, fun Bitcoiner vibe where you can you know, wander around and uh, talk and have conversations with some of your favorite Bitcoin educators uh, who will be wandering around in the audience and taking in the conference and the festival just as much as you are, which is one of the great perks, I think, of this conference in particular. So you can grab your tickets at pacificbitcoin.com. Uh, use code SIGNAL for 10% off. Lock those in right now. They'll just keep going up in price. And I would also like to thank Marathon for sponsoring this podcast. Marathon Digital Holdings uh, is traded on the NASDAQ under the ticker Mara, M-A-R-A. It's the largest and most technologically advanced publicly traded Bitcoin miner, as well as one of the most energy efficient. They're also the second largest holders of Bitcoin among publicly traded companies. Uh, I guess you can probably figure out who's number one uh, in North America. Uh, Marathon's primary mission is to enhance the Bitcoin network by sustainably increasing the amount of computational power or hash rate that helps make Bitcoin the world's most decentralized and secure monetary network. Thank you to Marathon for doing what you do to secure our sats. All right, so this is the, let's bring up uh, Preston and Sam. Uh, Sam moved over to the guest chair, one of the guest chairs here uh, for this episode. This is the quarterly report. 
Uh, we've been doing this for a long time as well. Normally, we have Andy Edstrom here. Today, he's being uh, subbed in by uh, our host uh, and today guest, uh, Sam Callahan. And Preston, man, uh, it's really good to see you. It's been a few months since I saw you at Pacific Bitcoin. How are you doing? Doing fantastic. How are you guys doing? Doing great. Doing Pretty great. Excited Happy about New Year. Yeah, ready for How are you doing, Sam? I'm doing great. Happy New Year. Happy New Year, man. Been a great and, year. And happy Genesis Day. Bitcoin yes. is 15 years old today, growing up, uh, very exciting, very, uh, you know, there's a lot of responsibility for a 15-year-old <laughs> to uh, to take on. This is a global asset now, and I think we're going to see that just continue that trend over the next couple of years, and we're going to talk about that today. But I also want to mention that uh, Trace Mayer, who a lot of you Bitcoiners who've been around for a while uh, will know as one of the most bullish and you know prominent educators early educators in this space and he has taken a step back from the spotlight you could you could say uh in the past few years which uh, is well deserved uh, retirement as a bitcoin educator but he pushed this idea of proof of keys day on genesis day every year and the idea was to withdraw your bitcoin from exchanges and mass on january 3rd every year to prove that those exchanges are holding the keys that they say they're holding. This is one of the most amazing things about Bitcoin is that we can take ownership or custody, self-custody of our keys and prove that the assets are there on the chain by ourselves. Uh, an amazing trait of Bitcoin and one that, I and we'll talk about this today as well, should help us avoid the risk of centralization in, uh, you know, like, trading vehicles like an ETF. Uh, so in honor of Trace Mayer, take your keys. If you have any on exchanges, which you shouldn't, uh, if you do take control of them today in honor of Satoshi and the Genesis block and proof of keys day. Does anybody want to say anything about how, uh, about the importance of self custody, uh, on this Genesis day? I think that uh, the importance of self-custody, especially as the only thing you're going to hear about in the news for probably the next six months is the ETF, probably for the, all of 2024. The only thing you're going to hear on CNBC and all these other major financial news networks is Bitcoin ETF, Bitcoin ETF. Heck, five minutes ago, yeah, five minutes ago, uh, there was an announcement that Goldman Sachs is in talks to be an authorized participant for the BlackRock and Grayscale spot Bitcoin ETF, Goldman Sachs. So this yeah. is the this is the stuff that is just going to flood the media. And what what actually makes Bitcoin have its value? It's it's something that I think is going to be lost on a whole lot of people that are just showing up for what you know is the start of the twenty twenty four. Uh, 2025 bull market. And what that is, the essence of why Bitcoin is so powerful is that imagine if it's gold. I can I can literally clack on a couple keys and the gold in the vault could be whisked away straight into my hands in my house. I can look at it. I can authenticate all of it. And then I can, I can put it wherever I want. I can keep it in my own vault. I could send it to, to wherever I want. But the fact that I can do that instantaneously and not just me, but anybody else that owns it, that actually owns it, and that's the yep. key point, right. can, can do that and conduct that physical audit is what makes it so different than anything that's ever existed that's trying to become the new global settlement layer. And uh, 
until you can wrap your head around why that's so profound and so important, um, you're going to fail to really kind of have the conviction to, to own Bitcoin through meaningful drops and a lot of volatility, which I think is going to continue to persist um, because we're nowhere near uh, realizing what this is actually worth on a global scale. But I think that that's, that's a really, really important point for people to think about uh, going into the new year. Yeah, I think it's like self-custody really highlights the purpose of Bitcoin, like what Preston mentioned. I mean, using it in a sovereign manner where you control your wealth. I mean, there's nothing else like it um, in a digital form. And when you're looking at these ETFs, like there's been marketing about the different fees, sponsor fees that are coming out in these amended filings. And for me, it's like there's no fee with owning spot Bitcoin and there's no counterparty risk. You don't have to trust it. So the whole point of Bitcoin is removing trust. I don't have to trust that a Coinbase is going to properly secure my Bitcoin that's underlying some security that represents the Bitcoin. Like that's an abstraction. And so owning the real spot Bitcoin, I think people will start to understand it. Now, I hope that they understand it before something bad happens. Like if people have to get burned before they understand the unique attributes that Bitcoin has that makes it special, like its decentralization, its censorship resistance, and the ability of people to actually take ownership of their wealth. And, um, you know, self-custody has always been a, me a message that we preach at Swan. And a lot of Bitcoiners try to preach people about it. It's kind of like top of the funnel is you learn about Bitcoin and the price. But then really quickly, you should start to understand why self-custody is important and start to get, kind of get your security in the right place for this coming bull market. Just, just to emphasize why this is so important, okay? The past cycle, if you're just showing up now and you're not intimately familiar with what happened on the on the past cycle. So as we're in the raging bull market of the, of the past cycle, you had FTX stand up and um, just, you know, massive, massive company. You had every major sports star in the United States, whether it was Tom Brady, Steph Curry, you, you name it, endorsing FTX, which for most people that are new and showing up are looking at that and saying, oh, well, this is this thing's legit, right? You have every umpire at the at the World Series wearing an FTX logo on on their uniform. Um, it was just from a cultural standpoint, seemed like there's no way something like this could ever go down, right? Um, you can do your own research. You can figure out whether you think government intervention was involved or there was some others like very bad actors involved with the FTX collapse. Okay. You can do that, that research. But what I would tell you is for them to have a nine or $10 billion hole in their balance sheet when they eventually went bankrupt with it being a massive Ponzi scheme and what appears to be a massive money laundering operation to which countless politicians were involved. You literally had people that's sitting on the banking uh, finance committee blowing kisses to Sam Bankman-Fried. Okay, these people that had deposits on this exchange, this exchange worth billions, lost everything because they didn't take self custody. And for people that are saying that, oh well, that can't happen because now we're at the big leagues and now Wall Street's here and they're going to play by the rules. And you know what? They might. They, your funds might be might be safe. You might enjoy the living hell out of having an ETF, and and you might never have an issue. But you also might not. 
And for the people that looked at this and took self-custody and took ownership of their Bitcoins, FTX was nothing but a buying opportunity. It was nothing but a buying opportunity. It was just another blip in the radar of Bitcoin's history of a lesson that has been taught over and over and over. every single cycle, there's been this lesson taught. And, and actually, every single cycle, the lesson has got more magnanimous with the sheer size of, of take ownership of your keys and don't trust somebody else to do it. And I'm not trying to say this to sound like an alarmist, to sound like a pessimist. I'm definitely not a pessimist. Let me tell you, I'm extremely bullish for the incoming year. But, um, and, and you know what? I think it, it, the ETF is going to orange pill so many people. Uh, so that's good. That's all, all of this is good. But at the, at the foundation of it, you have to educate yourself on like what the real value prop is and what the risks are of trusting somebody else to hold the keys for you. Yeah, yeah. Zach had a good comment just now in in the chat that 80% of the population is so trusting and will continue to happen. This is a good point. I mean, this is uh, a money that goes back to the properties of gold in that sense, that you could self-custody self the, the base asset itself. And that obviously, you know, ended around, uh, you know, by, with FDR early 1930 and then 1971 with with Nixon. And we haven't had, uh, you know, ownership, the ability to own a root asset, a base asset of, of a monetary system in many generations at this point. So it is completely out of the norm for us to not trust someone with our money. That's what we've been doing for many generations now. That's what we're taught. So it will take a while to unlearn all of that and re-educate people on the importance of holding their own money like Bitcoin. Um, so that's a really good point, Zach. I wonder if we could talk a little, little bit more about the ETF situation. There's a lot to discuss here. We're starting to get into it. Um, I tweeted out the other day that you know if you loved Bitcoin, not crypto, as a meme and a message, uh, you're going to love uh, even more, the Bitcoin not ETF message. And what Preston was getting at is this is a top of the funnel thing, right? This is bringing people into Bitcoin. It's, it's going to educate people about Bitcoin. Our job as a Bitcoin industry is then to edu further educate them to give up the ETF and buy and hold their own Bitcoin. And that is going to be a big project for us. So this idea of Bitcoin not ETF over the next few years how important is it for us to successfully transmit that message to enough people such that Bitcoin uh, will continue to stay resistant to resistant to centralization and avoid the fate of gold? Uh, Sam, let's go over to you for this one. Yeah, I know there's a lot of uh, there's a cohort of Bitcoiners kind of fighting against this ETF. But to me, it was always inevitable that Wall Street would realize the potential of Bitcoin and try to profit off of it with its financialization and trying to securitize it. And so really, it's up to us as a community to build tools that make it easier for people to self-custody and enhance the decentralization of the overall network. And so for me, I think that's what we should focus on as a community but then when you look at you know the ETF, I think it is going to be a top of funnel. Like people, when they have skin in the game, they actually own you know exposure to the price of Bitcoin. 
they'll see their wealth go up and they'll start to learn about this thing. And I believe that when people do that, they will start to realize like, oh, I actually don't own real Bitcoin. And maybe it will be that top of funnel where people will start to learn about it. Then they'll take self-custody. That's usually the progression that happens. And I, I do believe that the ETF is a big deal though, especially for institutional investors who are currently restricted from either investment mandates or regulatory requirements from owning spot Bitcoin. Um, I think it's kind of a more big deal for those like bigger institutional investors. But if you're an individual investor um, where you're not restricted from owning spot Bitcoin, I just don't really see why you wouldn't take self-custody and own the real thing instead of the paper Bitcoin, the, the ETF. And so it's up to us, the community, to build tools as well as educate, uh, continue to educate this new wave. There's going to be a huge new wave of, of new participants that come into Bitcoin that maybe haven't heard some of these things before. And so it's up to us as a community to educate them. So Preston, what about the risk? I know I've heard a lot of Bitcoiners express this concern. What about the risk of centralizing a bunch of Bitcoin? So ETFs become extremely popular, hundreds of millions of dollars, maybe even billions of dollars go into a Bitcoin ETF or Bitcoin ETFs. And all of that Bitcoin to back those shares is stored at Coinbase custody or some other, you know, institutional grade custody service or provider. What's the risk that this leads to a 6102 situation uh, against Bitcoin? So the risk to me is zero. Uh, <laughs> and the risk to anybody that's taking self-custody of their Bitcoin it's is zero. It's zero. <laughs> yeah. um, but for people that are trusting these institutions, I mean, you're talking about a honeypot. And so I, I put out a tweet and I said, why is nobody talking about how every single, uh, uh, not every single there's there's fidelity that's not and I think BitGo or whatever is is not as well but for everybody else they are using Coinbase as their custodian for all these Bitcoin that are going to be purchased on behalf of all these people that are owning the shares of these ETFs I I just you know at the end of the day the market's going to do what it does me just complaining about it hopefully just hopefully brings awareness and business opportunity for others to uh, become custody uh, custodians of these ETFs so that it's more spread out and there's not such a large honeypot. That's the only reason I tweeted it out and, and wanted to raise awareness. It's not that I'm anti-ETF or anti-this. I just think that there's way better ways that are that are less risky for individuals to take ownership of their money. And that's the point that I'm trying to make in the face of all of this. When you look at history and you look at when currencies change over, these types of things can get uh, really nasty um, where the government has to somehow figure out a way to fund itself. Obviously, these people running these governments uh, don't want to uh, cut spending by 50 to 80 percent because there's a new currency in town and and nobody knows the pace at which this is going to take place. Could this be 15, 20 years? Sure. Could it be five years? Sure. Do I know? You better believe I don't know. But what I do have is an appreciation for if this happens quickly and things get, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, disruptive or, or non-linear, um, the governments are going to do, have to do something to offset all of these expenditures that they have laid out. 
So what becomes an option at that point? Well, where's the biggest pot of Bitcoin that I can find so that I can take it and shove and, and make good or make good for all the people that actually own those Bitcoin. I can shove a bunch of this freshly printed fiat into their hands to offset the fact that I'm stealing all this Bitcoin from them, um, which they'll be happy for 10 days. And all of a sudden they'll figure out what happened and they'll be furious uh, because the price will be running that hard. That's what I'm worried about. Uh, I'm worried that these people that are uh, a don't really even understand what it is that they own, but they're taking a, a small position, call it 1% or whatever um, to, to own this um, just to, as a portfolio construction kind of standpoint, um, aren't doing the hard work to actually understand the affinity stone that they're holding on to in the sheer power that it wields uh, in the face of what is bound, in my opinion, bound to happen. Uh, so that's, that is what is so important for people to wrap their head around. So let's say you have a family. This is how I would apply this. You're going to have a family member, a friend in the coming year that comes up to you and says, I bought 1% of my portfolio into the BlackRock ETF. And then you're going to nod your head and say, congratulations. That's awesome. You're up 100% this year or whatever it might be, right? But the, but the real conversation needs to move to, okay, so what are your risks in potentially owning that thing? And that's just a, it's a hard conversation. It, it, there's a, a tremendous amount of knowledge and understanding that has to go back behind all of that to even entertain that conversation with that person. And to be quite honest with you, I'm exhausted in having this conversation <laughs> for this yeah. many years at this point. And I think that's where I'm getting frustrated in having to have the conversation yet again in another cycle, because you can see where the rug pull can potentially happen. And, um, you know, those are just some of my thoughts, but it doesn't, if you truly love these people and you want to help them, you, you need to somehow broach that subject. If you think that they can potentially, uh, have the intellectual courage to go down that path, uh, most probably won't, but, um, hopefully you can eventually get there at some point to, to highlight the risk. So you said zero risk to Bitcoiners who are holding their own Bitcoin. And sorry to belabor this because you just finished <laughs> saying how tired you are of having this conversation. Um, if, if the government ended up, you know, confiscating a bunch of Bitcoin from institutional custodians mm -hmm. and, and there's millions of Bitcoin being held by the U.S. government, um, is, is that does that give them does that not uh, risk? them being able to control the price and suppress price like they have been able to with Bic or with gold for so long? I love this question. And I think that you get a lot of people raising this as a risk. And of course, it is it is a risk. It's what's the magnitude of the risk. So right. when I look at Bitcoin and I look at self-custody, how much of the Bitcoin outstanding, we got 19 million Bitcoin issued today. How many of those Bitcoin percentage-wise are in a custodian that con controls an enormous sh share of those uh, units. It's like very small proportionally wise, but if you're thinking of it in a proportion, let's do that same analysis for gold. Okay. Where is, if you, if, if you could even audit the amount of gold that's out there, which you can't, how much of a percentage of that is sitting in a, in a, 
centralized vault that either a central banker owns or that uh, some bank is squatting on that has a bunch of paper riding on top of it. And if we compared those two ratios, let me tell you, they're in two different stratospheres of size. Yeah. Okay. And, and why? Why is that? Well, first of all, uh, Wall Street not being able to figure this out for 15 years and the SEC declining ETFs for as long as they did was a massive, massive uh, bullish thing for Bitcoin because it kept that ratio very different than what it would have been for gold. Could you imagine if they passed an ETF back whenever the Winklevi were trying to get one approved? Like yep. what the size of that bounty would be inside of that treasury for that vehicle? It'd be yep. insane. It would be insane. So yep. the fact that the SEC, and this is, this is a core lesson that people need to understand about Bitcoin. If you attack it and you try to slow it down, you are literally injecting it with qualities that make it stronger. <laughs> every time I've looked, every time I've seen somebody attack it, they have only made it stronger. And so, uh, you know, I lost my train of thought here on, on where we, oh, the, the ratio. So when we talk about derivatives and paper being constructed on top of it, um, I think that they, if, if wall street and the government was trying to do that and trying to control the price, I think that they have got a massive burden on their hands to try to get that thing back under control. I, I don't, yeah. I don't see how they're going to be able to do it, especially in the face of this incoming bull run that's about to happen. And, um, yeah, I, th I think that, um, and I think going through all of this, sorry to talk so long, Sam, uh, but I think going, going through all of this. It's also just putting on a clinic for the people that hold a lion's share of these monetary Bitcoin units that um, I know I would never put it in, in somebody else's custody. You're out of your mind because these people are learning through deep, deep conviction and knowledge as to why they would never want to do that. Um, so I think they, they've got a huge challenge if they're going to try to control it through a derivatives market. A lot of Wall Streeters like to chirp that, I think, to try to scare people away or to justify their lack of a position as a no-coiner. But uh, yeah. good luck. Yeah. So maybe it's too late at this point, and we've had 15 years of quote-unquote fair distribution at this point, and uh, it's it's well distributed amongst Bitcoiners and hodlers. And I think it, you know, we I saw Preston tweet a chart recently that 70% of Bitcoin or something like that hasn't moved in well over a year at this point. Um, so hodlers in control. Sam, yeah. uh, any thoughts and reaction to Preston there? No, I think that ratio is uh, really important. And I think it points to Bitcoin's global nature as well. Like not everybody is going to have access to US financial markets to be able to invest in the ETF. In fact, billions of people won't have access to the Bitcoin ETF. But Bitcoin is much more accessible. If anybody with a smartphone, an internet connection could technically hold Bitcoin and transact in Bitcoin. And so you got to think more globally with Bitcoin of how people are going to adopt it differently all over the world. And so I don't see that ratio really shifting that much because mm -hmm. like like President said, it's it's been so long. I mean, even in America, six uh, 6.5 million people are unbanked and 61% of Americans hold stocks. Uh, you know, there's a lot of permissions and gatekeeping that happens to even get an account to buy a Bitcoin ETF. 
and Bitcoin's very, very differently. So I think people have to think through that a little bit. And then I just, I'm not that concerned about the central centralization factors because of proof of work. Like that's the beauty of proof of, proof of work is nobody, no matter how much their power, money, influence can change the rules of the protocol. And so even if you are BlackRock or Goldman Sachs or JP Morgan Chase and you hold a bunch of Bitcoin, you still can't change the fact that there's only 21 million and you can't take my Bitcoin if I hold my private keys. And so I think that's the beauty of Bitcoin is proof of work. And so, yes, it's a threat to people who buy the ETF and trust. And so that's why we say take self-custody and don't trust that. Um, but even if Coinbase fat fingers it and messes up and loses the Bitcoin, well, then that's just like a donation to all existing Bitcoin holders because <laughs> you just made it a lot more scarce uh, for everybody else who actually took self-custody. So I don't really see it as that big of a threat if, if somebody actually takes self-custody of the Bitcoin. Take self-custody of your Bitcoin. Preach that to all your family and friends as they come to you over the next couple of years because these ETFs will be spending, the companies behind the ETFs will be spending hundreds of millions of dollars advertising Bitcoin on our behalf, <laughs> on the HODLer's behalf. Um, and that's one of the facts about, you know, po very positive developments about the ETF is going to be introducing so many people to Bitcoin in a very positive way. And that will counter, I think, the narratives that are coming out of Washington, uh, especially from our friend, Senator Elizabeth Warren. So let's move over to her attempt. And we can also combine this with the FinCEN rule changes. Oh, yeah. that both, both of them happened in, the, in Q4 of 2023. And so let's talk about those two things. Elizabeth Warren's bill, uh, the FinCEN rule changes, and also the, and this is something I just learned this morning, Preston, from your uh, Twitter feed. Uh, apparently SBF donated, well, I knew this part, donated $100 million to politicians uh, to buy favor, obviously, and apparently uh, kisses from Maxine Waters. So the U.S. government dropped uh, the political campaign or political finance, uh, campaign finance charges, and there was a $39 million donation to Senator Warren's uh, campaign through Super I, PAC, I, I imagine. I shared that from an article that I saw, but I don't think that the source is really uh, solid, all that trustworthy, but I, I don't know. I really don't know, but that was the number that was quoted in that uh, article. Um, regardless of whether she got that amount or any amount or whatever, the amount of donations that SBF was I'm going to use the word laundering through yeah. these politicians and entities that went to Ukraine and everywhere else, like all of it screams government tentacles all over uh, FTX. And I think that that's the thing that has me concerned is when I, when I do an audit on the last cycle, the thing that, that I think surprised me the most looking back at that four year period of time is we were in a deep fight, in my opinion, in my tin, fat, uh, tin hat uh, humble opinion, I think we were in a very deep fight with the state to try to kill Bitcoin. Um, and I think that once it found a floor and started to rise and look at last year, I mean, they're still battling it last year and it was up over 150%. I think at that point it was, okay, we can't defeat this thing. You literally had Jim Cramer on TV yesterday saying Bitcoin is 
that's probably <laughs> the worst contra signal I could ever say. But um, <laughs> and then we get a six percent dump. Yeah. It's just right on right on cue. You got Jihan Wood this morning. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, I think that Wall Street was looking at it. I think they threw everything that they had through the co-op of Wall Street and government uh, bureaucracy working together hand in hand, trying to take this thing down on the last cycle. And I, I think you could even make the argument that they are joining us with the intention to to like if you were really going to take a negative point of view on this and i'm not saying that this is my base case but if you were really going to take a negative view on this you'd say they're going to approve this etf they're going to try to create a honeypot then they're going to try to rug pull a massive amount of people to sow seeds of distrust it back into bitcoin similar to what i would argue they did with ftx mm -hmm. uh but on an even grander scale that would be a very tinfoil negative view on like what's currently taking place. But I think, uh, I actually think that there's a lot of capitulation kind of happening on wall street. And I think once they start making a ton of money on these products, uh, you might see them actually start to try to lean into it and protect it more than to try to attack it. Mm -hmm. Um, so, uh, yeah, that, that would be the range. I'm not saying one's one way or the other. I'm just trying to define the range of what this could or couldn't be as people kind of look at the participation that's currently happening. Sam, can you comment on the Senator Elizabeth Warren proposed legislation? And then I'll let uh, Preston take lead on the FinCEN rule changes because I know that he's done a lot of thinking and writing about that stuff. Well, it basically, I feel like it's an attack on quote unquote unhosted wallets or the ability of people to self custody because it makes them, it basically requires them to report information that they a, probably can't even comply with. And it treats them like financial institutions. Anybody who's running a node or relays quote unquote blockchain information has to act like a financial institution and comply with reporting requirements and like AML KYC. And um, it's just an attack on permissionless blockchain infrastructure and trying to make it unavailable to Americans. It's trying to siphon any kind of uh, decentralization in terms of the ability to run a node to self-custody and trying to siphon it into basically custodied arrangement with regula regulated entities that report uh, identifying information on all the users. And so... It's really an extension of the Bank Secrecy Act, which you know I find unconstitutional. I think it's an infringement um, on our privacy, which is um, protected by the Fourth Amendment, but also it's just a fundamental human right, uh, privacy. It's it's your ability to live with dignity and, and not feel like there's a big brother watching over your shoulder. It's actually fundamental to democracy to be able to have private conversations that go against uh, you know the consensus of, of, the, of the government and it allows us to kind of formulate ideas and push forward. And so it's an attack on privacy when it really comes down to it. And it, it's an attack on property rights. And so that's why I'm very, very against this Warren bill. And I think, you know, Bitcoiners are really loud about it, but I think it actually extends out further. And there should be more of an uproar about this from communities or any, anybody who, who wants financial privacy. And we've just seen pri privacy just continue to get eroded over the last couple of decades. And it's just getting into a kind of a nonsensical state right now where they just continue to want more and more privacy in the name of security. But there's a there's a pendulum there. And I think that pendulum has to swing back. And, um, you know, I think Preston wrote a great piece about the FinCEN rules, which is a little bit differently. But 
but like there has to be a movement here and adv advocate for privacy when it comes down to it, because that's kind of the underlying core issue here. Americans haven't shown much, you know, historically much concern about losing privacy in the name of security. Uh, I mean, just let's take a look at the Patriot Act. percent Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's the best example, right? And then all of all of the the fallout from the Patriot Act, where Americans, mostly unknowingly, I'm sure, were giving up uh, tons of, of uh, privacy rights. And it led to the mass surveillance of, of the American, you know, every American citizen. And that's been documented thanks to Snowden. So do you have any faith that Americans will actually rally into a movement to defend their privacy? Yeah, you know, it's kind of hard to tell because you're right. Like there, it's this ongoing battle between privacy and security that's really been going on really it's it's since the cypherpunks. I mean, and, and in the digital age, it's encryption that allows for privacy. And so you have this battle against encryption and Bitcoin is just that next step in that battle or that war against privacy in the digital age. And Americans have to start caring because we could live in this world that I don't think anybody really wants to live in, which is this surveillance state that we talk about. And maybe we're already in it, uh, but Bitcoin represents kind of a change in the path um, where encryption is brought back into our lives and there's some some kind of a amount of uh, anonymity to our transactions where they can't see every single thing that we're going to do all the time and attach identifying information to it. Um, and so I think building tools that increase privacy on Bitcoin should be at the forefront of what people are building today because I think it's that important. Um, but you're right, you know, when when you look at history, you know, lot not a lot of people care about it. But I think that's about it's about building technologies that can like fight against it that they can't stop that's going to be ultimately what matters you know i'm reminded of lynn alden's quote from her book broken money which she said you know politics can affect things locally and temporarily but technology can affect things globally and permanently and so i just i i think there could be a fight now on the political level and maybe we might lose that battle but if we build technologies that overcome it that could be a permanent change yep. and kind of, uh, you know, reset this course that we're on towards the surveillance state. Yeah, I mean, that's a great point. We have an alternative and the alternative is not going away. So even if we can't build a movement in time to stop something like a CBDC in this country, the, the best way to advocate maybe for Bitcoin will be to have the CBDC enacted and let's, you know, show through you know, the reality of the situation to Americans, the consequences, the privacy consequences of a CBDC, and then people move over to Bitcoin. A lot of times people need to experience the consequences in order to understand them. Uh, Preston, let's talk a, a minute about the FinCEN uh, regulations or the proposed rule changes. Can you summarize those and what do you think their potential to be enacted are and what the fallout might be uh, in the coming years, if the rules are changed. Before I do that, I just want to make one comment on that last yes. uh, part that you guys were saying. I think one of the the big benefits that the United States does have is how powerful state rights are. Um, and if there's any saving grace or hope here in the United States, it's kind of the fact that you have all these different uh, states that are able to uh, create laws to help protect uh, 
sovereignty rights for ownership of Bitcoin versus a central bank digital currency. And I think that that's a massive battle that would take place between states and the federal government, which uh, when you, when you're trying to defeat this and maybe stand up a CBDC in its place, which, you know, that's a whole very, very long conversation that I, almost is an eye roll to me because <laughs> I don't think that they have a chance. Um, the time, the speed at which you can implement something like that and gain control of, of the narrative and the money is of the essence. And that battle that would take place between states and federal government here in the U.S. is, is one of the reasons why I'm so bullish for Bitcoin and I don't think the CBDC stands a chance. Um, on the FinCEN side, so a little bit of background. So this is back in, oh, when was it? Was, it, was this early... Uh, December or maybe even November. It might have been November. Yeah, it was November. It was November. Um, so Elizabeth Warren comes out and is just throwing all of this Wall Street Journal report around that uh, Hamas was being funded by crypto and uh, the whole bit, right? She sends a letter off to the president uh quoting this wall street journal article which was a total hack job where they said that it was you know over a hundred million dollars that was funneled through crypto in, in the reality the chain analysis uh showed that it was like three or four hundred thousand dollars which was less than a percent of what they were claiming in the wall street journal wall street journal had to go back and uh clarified that they were wrong in the article but this was all noise uh weeks later after like her attempt or the messaging campaign that she was working went out. The next day after she sent this message to the president, FinCEN, which falls under the president's cabinet, uh, came out with this proposed uh, policy of this sweeping regulation against crypto. And, and when I say sweeping, I mean, it's just take as much... Uh, garbage that you could possibly collect throw it against the wall and just let's see what the heck sticks was was how i would describe this fincen proposal when you actually read it and let me tell you i've read it and i've gone through it aggressively <laughs> it is um so overwhelming the amount of legal speak and uh laws referenced and this is all uh you know, you, you can go look it up. Um, the easiest way to find my response for this is just uh, type in ego death capital or ego death in FinCEN and it'll be it should be the first thing that comes up on Google. Um, and you'll see the the response that I put out there. And I went line by line through all this. FinCEN had, uh, oh boy, uh, I want to say like 30 questions, 34 questions maybe that I responded to um, of so when, when they put this proposal out into the public, they list questions along with the proposal that the public can respond to. The purpose of this uh, response with the public is, hey, we're getting ready to make a bunch of changes to the law. This is your chance, public, to tell us your concerns or where we might be missing something so that we can make it as effective as possible um, in, a, in a legal framework. And then after that comment period, ends which i think it ends on the 22nd of january so it's still open still open for comments and i would highly highly encourage people to read copy plagiarize whatever i've uh you know just pull a president gay uh, and uh just you know copy everything that i put here and post it into the comments um the harvard uh 
president that just stepped down. Um, <laughs> go uh, look at this and take what all the research that I conducted. This took me like three three weeks to put together. Um, but the main things that I found as I went through the proposal is that it aggressively violated um, a couple core things in our constitution. First of all, it's unreasonable searches and seizures. Uh, this was, you know, the first thing that I addressed. I go through all the case on all of these points. I have case law that backs up why it's breaching our constitutional rights. The next one was the freedom of speech and association. Then I talk about the right to financial privacy. Um, I talk about the due process and rights being violated in the constitution. Uh, the right to secure uh, and personal information, your personal information and data uh, is drastically violated. Uh, the right to non-discrimination is violated in the Constitution, and then the access to financial services is violated. Um, tons of data and information and case law to back up all of that. So go into that document, copy and paste it, put put the content. Here's why you do this. So they're gonna they're gonna pass this thing. Okay, they will pass this proposal. And what happens after they pass it is now it's on the burden of anybody in this space, any industry, this whole industry to go and fight legally why their rights were breached. Okay. You're not going to stop them from, from, you know, pushing this through. They're going to push it through. Um, but what we can do from a legal standpoint for all these companies, you know, if, if you're a business in this space, um, what you can do when you do go to court after it's been passed is you can say, look back here in the public register. There was a thousand comments about how this is illegal and this is violating our rights. And yet the FinCEN went and passed it, right? And let me tell you, I, I've talked to Joe Carlosari and some other legal experts. I was like, does that actually help you as you're litigating this on the back end? And they're like, absolutely, it's huge, Okay. So that's, that's what you're really doing. You're not going to stop it from happening, but on the other side, when it does show up in the courts, everybody can kind of point to all these key points that we're making and highlighting through case law of how they're just, um, just overtly like stealing your freedom and your rights. Like, <laughs> like it's really bad. So the, I guess the whole point of all of that, take action, go read the document. Uh, you don't have to, I mean, it's very long. It's very thorough. But you can go in there, pull whatever pieces you're passionate about, just post it in. You know, it's really, I have links straight to the FinCEN comment section. You can click it. You put your email address in. You paste your comment in and just hit submit. Um, after I published this FinCEN, I don't know if, how much of an impact I had versus what people were naturally doing. But we had hundreds, hundreds of comments that were posted into the into the register after this went out. So uh, please, please take action and just, you know, take three minutes of your time, five minutes of your time to, to post something. Yeah. I mean, this is really important and it does actually make a difference. Um, so go do that search ego death capital and FinCEN and you'll find Preston's post, uh, read through it, skim it, find a section you can copy paste. It'll take you three to five minutes. There's just a web page pasted into a, into a form. Uh, we will also put the link in the show notes for that. So everybody listening, please go do that right now. Pause the podcast, three minutes, take care of that. It really does make a difference. And you've got skin in the game. So if you want to protect your corn, you know, take take a few minutes to do so. Um, 
let's let's move on to the news from the last couple of days that the U.S. has crossed thirty-four trillion dollars in debt, which is just a staggering number. It's really hard to conceive, and the interest expense on that debt is now one point one trillion a year. Does that sound right, guys? Yes. Yeah. One point one over a trillion dollars per year just in interest expense. That does not count any of the any of the spending that you're that we're borrowing to do. So, Sam, uh, you know, just comment in general on the enormity of this debt. What? How can the U.S. possibly get out of debt at this point? It's completely hopeless, it seems to me. And what are your predict predictions for? This year, next year, for how you know this, the debt continues to balloon. Is there any end in sight? Which way does it go? Uh, a, a good resolution, a responsible resolution, is that possible, or does it go just the other you know direction? Crack up, boom, and everything. There's like chaos for at least a little while until things settle down. Well, in this this period, it's been described as fiscal dominance, um, where these debt dynamics, when it gets so large and the interest expense gets so large, it starts to overwhelm any kind of uh, monetary policy that the Fed wants to do. So when the Fed raises interest rates, it increases the interest expense, which only increases the deficits more, which worsens the inflation. And so I think we're going to continue to see uh, them try to do what they've done over the last 10 years. They're going to just try to spend their way out of it, which means debasement of the currency. I mean, to be clear, it means they're going to sacrifice the currencies. And this is all over the world. This isn't just the United States, but they're going to sacrifice the currencies eventually. And they're going to go back to trying to stimulate their way out of it. Um, now, I think that's why you're maybe starting to see some messaging from the Fed on potential cuts next year. I think it's really comes down to what the fiscal situation is and the treasury as they have to refinance this debt, it becomes very, very unaffordable for them if interest rates continue to rise or kind of even stay where they are. And I think you saw Janet Yellen even before Jerome Powell did his, now what people are calling a pivot, you know, Janet Yellen, like the week before was sounding like the Fed chair, you know, talking about how inflation is, you know, we basically declared victory and that going back down to 2% from here, it's going to be really easy, you know, and they don't need to like continue to raise rates. Um, it's weird to see the Treasury Secretary speaking like, like a Fed chair. And you're, that's kind of really a signal to me that we are in this period where all the fiscal situation is kind of taking precedent over any kind of other mandate the Fed has in terms of price stability, you know, full employment. Um, really, it's about, you know, funding the government. <laughs> and that's what it's always been about. It's been this like secret mandate that they have. And so I, I think we're going to see them cut rates eventually. They're going to sacrifice the currency. They're going to debase the currency. They're going to print uh, and try to inflate their way out of this. Um, and that's, I think that's a kind of a core value like a thesis that a lot of bitcoiners have i mean that's that's kind of why we are where we are is because we see this end game of okay they're going to debase the currencies like i'm not certain about how this happens how this plays out but i know at the end of the day they're going to have to turn and debase the currency further and i want to own a money that they can't debase that has absolute scarcity that'll actually benefit in that environment well said Preston, thirty-four trillion. Where's this going? So, uh, uh, Joe Consorti posted a really important chart, as far as I'm concerned, to just kind of graphically understand uh, 
a response to your question, Brady, which is, are we getting to a point where we're in a debt spiral and this is becoming unserviceable? Um, the, the chart is the federal deficit as a percentage of GDP. And when you look at this over the last 40 years, what you're going to see is a trend that is, that's got a lot of volatility into it, but is trending. There you go. You got to pull it up. Thank you, uh, Jacob, for putting that up there. Um, what you can see is a trend that is, uh, not in the linear kind of way, but in an exponential kind of way, starting to fall off. Um, I've asked uh, uh, Luke Roman and other very Lynn Alden and very smart people when it comes to this from a historical standpoint, at what percentage does does things start to get a little chaotic and disorderly with respect to the debt spiral as a federal deficit as a percentage of GDP? And the numbers that I hear are between like 12 and 15 percent. Once you start getting to those percentages, it's it starts getting disorderly. We, uh, so we, through COVID, we got down to b below 15% and then it shot back up and now we're around 8%. And the trend on the chart is suggesting that that's the direction that we're heading in and quickly. Um, and why this is important is because as you're adding more of this fiat, more of this printing into the system, your GDP is climbing. And so this is the, this is the illusion that everybody is being duped into believing that, that they can, they can continue to do these antics and there's no consequences. But when you start getting to the tail end of this, what you're actually doing is you're sowing the seeds of, of total destruction into the free and open market because you don't have, you just can't start a business these days. You can't go out there and, and compete as an entrepreneur for the most part because it's so insanely difficult to outpace the debasement rate of the fiat. And so this, this manifests itself in some of these charts that we can kind of look at. And so let me give you, I just recorded a podcast with a gentleman on real estate and Bitcoin. Listen to these numbers. This is total to, to kind of illustrate it from a perspective that everyday people can, can understand what I'm talking about and why so many people are being duped right now. So go back to before COVID, okay, the January 1st, 2020. Back then, in, in the town that I live, uh, a middle class home was around, you know, maybe upper middle class was around $500,000 to own a house if you were going to buy it. Okay. Um, today, that same exact house goes for a million dollars. Okay. It's only been four years. Four years in that house has, appreci has appreciated. And I'm using air quotes here because once you hear the math, this is going to blow your mind is appreciated to a million dollars. Well, if you're a millennial or you're somebody that's trying to buy a house now, today, and not four years ago, listen to this math. That $500,000 house compared to the million dollar house today, because interest rates have changed because inflation is now manifesting itself. Back then, that $500,000 house you could buy with a 3% interest rate loan. But today, that same house, that million-dollar house is 7%. So guess how much more expensive your monthly payment is on that house from just four years ago? It's not twice as much. It's 3.2 times higher than what it was just four years ago. So if, you're, if your monthly payment on this house was, you know, uh, let me see what the numbers are here. Um, well, I, I did a net present value instead. So the, the net present value when the house was 
500,000 at 3% was $758,000. Today, the net present value of that house is $2.4 million. What? <laughs> okay. Because it's a million at 7%. Okay. Now here's the thing that's really going to blow your mind. You ready? That house back in 2020, in January of 2020, was 70.2 Bitcoin. Okay. You know what it is with the million dollar in fiat terms, uh, what that house is in Bitcoin today? It's 22 Bitcoin. Okay. Wow. So that's a 68% reduction in the price of this house for a person that uses Bitcoin as their unit of account. 68 the house price went down by 68% in the Bitcoiners world, but in the fiat person's world, the price went up by a, by a hundred percent. It's twice as much, right? This is why people can't understand this because a person who's looking at this, that just looks at Bitcoin as being some made up Mario coin, internet money is, is looking at this and saying, Oh, if I would have just been able to buy a house back in 2020, I'd be, I'd have 500,000 bucks if I levered it. You know, if I levered up, I would have $500,000 in my bank account, right? That, that's what the, that's what the person, that's what the no coiner is telling themselves. They're being rope-a-doped into this old legacy system by the numbers and what they think is increase in buying power. But for the Bitcoiner, they're looking at this and they're saying, I don't want to, I do not want to uh, move from the house that I'm in right now. I don't want to buy the the bigger house. I don't want to buy, because the value of this thing is going to get cheaper by 68% every four years. Wow. <laughs> it's yeah. it's mind-blowing. And I think the numbers are so, the, the numbers are so lost on people because people don't look at Bitcoin performance in four-year periods of time. If there's one thing I would I would highly encourage for you to talk to family and friends about is period holding periods under four years get more and more speculative as you get further to the left in that timeline. So like if you're talking a month's performance of Bitcoin, it's insanely speculative. Once you get to that four-year threshold, I don't think it's speculative at all. And the proof in the pudding of that, did you ever see the circular uh, chart with the price, how it never penetrates a, a previous no, rational period route. of time, four years? Yeah, Rational Root has an amazing chart on this. That is that is the thing that you got to focus on is a four-year holding period because it's truly investment at the four-year holding period, at least based off of historical performance. And if people can, can somehow shift their line of thinking to this as their unit of account and holding period, let me tell you, like your life just starts changing in dramatic ways, dramatic ways. Cause I'm the person who's looking at that house and saying, I'm up a hundred percent. I'm looking at it and saying that house just got cheaper by 68%. It, it, uh, it reminds me of the Ross Stevens, uh, annual shareholder letter where he talks about, you know, it's impossible to overstate the advantage of being on the Bitcoin standard. And he talks about his firm and he says our firm compensation, rent and total expenses are up 89%. 119% and 69% in fiat and down 36%, 26% and 43% in Bitcoin. And so yeah. it works for everyone. It works for individuals. It works for corporations. You know, life is getting cheaper for Bitcoiners over time. And it's uh, people who hold fiat. Everything is getting more and more expensive. And that I think that that separation between Bitcoiners over a long period of time, people who hold better money versus people who don't, I think that's going to get more and more stark and people are going to understand it. Yeah.
But what about the deflationary spiral, boys? (laughs) 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 Um, All right, let's finish up with this because we're at about a a time, but I wanted to get this in for sure. Uh, Another piece of big news from Q4 is just the continuing march of Michael Saylor accumulating Bitcoin both for MicroStrategy, his company, and for himself. Uh, I loved the announcement on the quarterly shareholders meeting that Saylor will be selling was it 5,000 shares of MicroStrategy stock every day until sometime in April to acquire more Bitcoin for his personal stash. So this this is, an I mean, just amazing to watch. Year after year, his conviction is completely steady. It just get, it seems to deepen. And he's got almost 200,000 Bitcoin in MicroStrategy. What does this mean? I mean, he's front-running every corporation at this point because corporations are going to put Bitcoin on their treasury uh, balance sheets in in mass in the next few years probably and he's spent the last two years front running all of that um what does this mean for the future of u.s corporations he's sort of rewriting the book on how to manage a balance sheet in a u.s corporation uh preston you want to take this one first yes i really want to take this question because i think so many people are missing what's happening here and let me tell you there's one hell of a story happening here yeah uh him uh, exercising these stock options and then buying Bitcoin privately uh, with the 5,000 a day till April, I, uh, that is a uh, not even a story to me. The story to me is MicroStrategy, I'm gonna use the word debasing their shares outstanding by 25% over the last year. This is a highly dilutive activity for what would appear to be a, a common stock on the publicly traded markets. But that's not what's happened from a Bitcoin per share basis. I would describe it as being anti-dilutive. So what, what in the world does all that mean? So when we look at equity all over the world, especially publicly traded equity, it's typically around a, a PE of 30 to 35 times, okay? That's the current market rate if you're dealing with billion-dollar enterprise in, in any type of uh, developed uh, public markets these days. If, if that valuation is rich and we're moving into a Bitcoin world, what it means is you should be issuing shares in taking those shares and converting it into the new settlement layer, okay? And the proof in the pudding is the performance of MicroStrategy in a, how much Bitcoin you hold in a per share basis over the last year. So what Michael Saylor is literally screaming to the world with his actions is, not only is my MicroStrategy overvalued at whatever it is, 30 or 35 times earnings or whatever it is today, but so is your equity. And what you should be doing is selling more of this common stock at 30 or 35 times earning and converting it into Bitcoin and sticking it on your treasury. And you talk, we've talked about this speculative attack, the, the Michael Goldstein and Pierre Rochard idea of a speculative attack. 
And a lot of people were throwing that term around with, with now micro strategies doing this, but when they initially did it, they were doing it with convertible debt and they were paying like 75 bips for uh, this five-year duration. It was convertible in the common stock. And, and everybody was like, oh yeah, this is, this is the speculative attack, right? <laughs> it's done by a, by a publicly traded company. But you want to talk about a speculative attack. It's what he's doing right now by issuing more common stock and creating more shareholder value for shareholders by not even like having to pay uh, interest rate. He's just doing it by issuing more common stock and then turning, converting it into Bitcoin because the PE is grossly mispriced globally all over the planet. So what would be an appropriate PE ratio in a Bitcoin world? Well, I've said this on other shows, if, if it's 10 or maybe it even goes to five or whatever, let's just say it's 10, right? And you're at a 30. That means you need a 30 or a 66% reduction from current equity premiums to, to manifest itself into, into this new world, which means you should be a seller of common stock until it gets to those PE ratios. If you're denominating your, your treasury and all your free cash flows into Bitcoin for the companies that aren't doing that, it's, it even has further the fall. This is. This is a really, really big deal and a really big idea that I think is lost on nearly everybody. Now we can get into whether this strategy is appropriate and smart when we get into maybe late 2025. I personally would probably adjust the strategy a little bit, like me personally, but for where he's at today um, and where we're at in the environmental backdrop of where Bitcoin's at in the four-year cycle, I think this is not just brilliant, but I think it's genius. And I think he's putting on a freaking clinic for Wall Street and they're all asleep at the wheel. That's what I think. History in the making. <laughs> Michael Saylor will be a, a king <laughs> moving <laughs> forward in, in the over the next few decades. And MicroStrategy will be a force to be reckoned with for probably sen a century or more to come. He's building a, a megalith. Sam, what are your, what's your take on GigaChad? Well, I, I'm sorry to interrupt. Yo, go Sam. ahead, Preston. I got one other no, point because I see a comment here. I see a comment here that Sailor knows the stock value is unsustainable. So here's the, here's the thing that's so wild about this play. The higher that his company starts to get valued because people are looking at, let's say it starts getting valued at a PE of 50. He is even more incentivized to do this yeah play even harder <laughs> mm -hmm. that's what makes it so insane and that's why i'm saying all of wall street is lost on what is happening here because so as, bitcoin as bitcoin goes up in price the pe yeah. ratio goes up and the the more incentive he has to issue more common stock to buy more bitcoin bingo wow. yes wow. now that's where he at like again he has to be very careful because Let's say the PE blows out to 75, or I don't even have any clue how high it could go, but let's just say that as an example. Let's say the, pay, the PE blows out to 75 and we're late 25, 2025. He's going to be highly incentivized to, uh, to leverage that, that market premium by issuing more common stock into the market and buying Bitcoin. But he's also going to be potentially doing it at a time where if we go through another market cycle, um, that might that still might be a bad decision despite how overvalued the company. Well, I'm saying right. overvalued. Who knows what, but uh, how rich the premium is 
Uh, and that's going to be a difficult thing to kind of balance psychologically. I know if, if I was in charge, if I was the CEO or chairman of MicroStrategy, that would be really difficult to manage from a psychological standpoint. Mm -hmm. But I think he he needs, if, if I was Michael, <laughs> like I'm giving Michael advice, but uh, <laughs> if I was Michael, I would lay out my rules today while you don't have that psychological uh, thing kind of playing out in, in the heat of where I think this bull market's about to rip so that you just kind of look at what you told yourself back when the emotions weren't flowing, that that's what you're going to exercise. And I, I think it's going to be, I mean, what a case study in financial, uh, like doctorate level financial, uh, valuation. Sorry, 100%. Sam. Sorry, Sam. <laughs> no, I, I, I think that was brilliant. I mean, what he's doing today is going to be written in textbooks. That's what I think. And the fact that he sold, you know, over a million shares, um, technically it dilutes shareholders. And technically, I think there'd be like an uproar about it, but not in this case, because when you look at the Bitcoin per share, it's actually increased after he did that. And I think that's what he's looking at. I think that's what Preston just was talking about. That's why it's anti-dilutive. And I think the people who own MicroStrategy at this point understand this uh, concept, at least to a, a, a like they may not understand exactly what Preston just said, but they understand I I bought this because they're buying Bitcoin <laughs> and they're okay with it because they're they're like, look at the stock price just keeps going up. And I think that right now, you know, only a handful of corporations led by innovative thinkers like like a Michael Saylor, Ross Stevens, they're benefiting from the Bitcoin standard. But it's only a matter of time before other business leaders kind of catch on. And uh right now US companies are sitting on a little bit over like around $6 trillion in fiat that are continually going to get debased. And they're going to look at the success of other companies like MicroStrategy and Stone Ridge. And that's going to spur them to consider a Bitcoin standard if they want to remain competitive. Because again, they can't protect themselves from other corporations adopting a superior you know, treasury reserve asset. And uh, I think we're just going to see this play out. The FASB rules helps as well, helps kind yeah. of reduce barriers. And I think I think maybe a lot of people expected it to happen sooner in terms of corporations after MicroStrategy came in. Uh, but I think maybe that's, uh, that's what we're going to see this cycle is we're going to see a lot more corporations come in um, over the next like four years or so. Yeah. What, <clears throat> some, with the, something with the SEC blessing and the Wall Street blessing makes things easier. It provides CYA... Uh, as they say, mm -hmm. something to kind of illustrate the the how fascinating this is right now, especially uh, for micro strategy. So uh, studying Buffett, one of the things that Buffett learned very early on was he started off uh, running a hedge fund and and basically uh, using that model. And what he what he learned very early on was everybody wants to give you liquidity when when everything's overvalued and you don't need it. And then they want to take that liquidity away from you when you need it most because the the buys and the valuations are the cheapest and you can get the most equity for for your money and so you're handicapped by the lps and the people inside of your fund giving you the liquidity at the exact wrong time and taking it away from you at the exact wrong time so by uh and there, there was a lot of major issues with Berkshire Hathaway when he first bought it. Um, it. Buffett would even tell you that that was probably the biggest mistake that he ever made was was uh, buying Berkshire Hathaway, <laughs> as, as surprising as that might sound to people that know what it's turned into today. But very early on, he bought a, a, a dying business. 
But what that business provided him was the exact opposite scenario that you get through hedge fund management, which is when the market is overvaluing your shares, let's say a, a PE of 35 or 50, what you can do is you can issue more stock and take advantage of these people that are overvaluing the business by turning that into something that is very liquid and very stable in, in the value of what it is. And then when the market punishes the company through just the natural flow of, of M2 that's coming in and out like, a, like an ocean wave, right? You can then take that really stable value and you can convert it back into, you can buy the common stock back off of the market and take advantage of that scenario. So you're taking that model and you're literally flipping it upside down on its head and you're now turning what would have been your uh, disadvantage into your strength. And when I look at MicroStrategy, what I see is a worn, a, a person of insane intelligence that is doing that exact thing with his publicly traded company today. And he's doing it with Bitcoin as the thing that he's preserving that that market premium into, uh, I, I'll tell you, as a person who studies this stuff aggressively, I have, I have not seen something more exciting and mysterious. That I think that's why I like it so much is I think it's so lost on everybody what he's doing, and I think it's brilliant. Amazing. Yeah. Giga Chad. Uh, yeah. Truly living up to his name. It is amazing to watch, and he drops you know every quarter tweet about following the exact same format as it has been for two years you know we've acquired a gajillion bitcoin now we hold uh a gajillion five gajillion bitcoins and whatever it is but it's just amazing to watch he's going to get that one percent of of the supply no doubt uh with micro strategy and it's amazing to watch so gentlemen uh one prediction for 2024 obviously does not need to be price, but just one prediction for 2024. We'll look back at the end of this year and see if it came true. Sam. Um, my prediction is that, well, how about this? I think that the ETH Bitcoin chart is going to return to uh, like a four year low. Uh, so I think, I think you're going to continue to see Bitcoin outperform the broader crypto market because only Bitcoin has, real regulatory clarity. And I think all of these developments we talked about, institutional interests, corporations, I think it's really focused around Bitcoin itself. And so you're going to continue to see Bitcoin outperform over the next year to the rest of the cryptocurrency market. And that's how I kind of read that as I just look at the ETH Bitcoin chart. And I think that's going to drop down to levels not seen since late 2020. So basically, it's going to erase all of those gains that uh, the ETH Bitcoin chart had with all the DeFi and all the 2021, it's going to return back to before that. Yeah, I think that we may be at a point now where we can actually say that Bitcoin has largely defeated crypto. And I think that, you know, the last year and a half, things that have happened, the giant exchanges, you know, crypto casinos that have collapsed, there's very little trust in crypto anymore. I think Bitcoiners have pretty successfully made the case that Bitcoin is not crypto. And, you know, that the Bitcoin industry and all the companies in this industry have made the right choice in terms of, you know, focusing on Bitcoin only. I was in a space last night uh, that was talking about ordinals and, and crypto and all of that stuff. 
and and ETH and the morale on the Ethereum front is extremely low at this point. Uh, so we'll see how that plays out. But I think you're probably going to be right on that one. Preston, do you have a prediction for us? It goes back to a comment that I made during Pacific Bitcoin uh, when we were on stage. I said, I think in the coming year, you're going to start to see the Black Rocks of the world and all these large banks to start to say that they think a 1% to 2% position of Bitcoin in their portfolio is a responsible thing to do. And I think this is really big. Um, I think most people outsource their their finances to the quote unquote experts and um, having a Larry Fink or how you can say whatever you think about these guys, uh, you know, <laughs> that's a whole nother conversation. But <laughs> them coming out and saying that they think a one or two percent position, I think, is massive. This is a very big deal. When I look at the asymmetry that Bitcoin kind of brings to a portfolio uh, especially with a, a small position size uh, and what it does to performance. I think once you start to put some of that into people's portfolio, um, it is going to really take on a life of its own. And I think that you might see that by the end of the year where that's becoming commonplace for the Fidelities and the Black Rocks and heck, maybe even the JP Morgans for all we know. Uh, that they're going to start saying that they think a one or two percent position is an appropriate response to have in your portfolio. If you run the numbers and you look at a 60-40 portfolio and add in a small percentage of Bitcoin, one to up to 5% or something, massively changes the performance of the portfolio over time. So th as that knowledge is disseminated by Wall Street and these bigger banks and, and financial advisors, et cetera, yeah, it could be a huge, huge deal. So all kinds of sources of liquidity coming into Bitcoin. It could be an absolutely monster year or two coming up that um, to the point where we haven't even seen before. Um, price could could start running like crazy. It's going to be very interesting. Bitcoin's growing up, global stage being talked about in Washington, legislation, the you know, we didn't even talk about this, but the election cycle is coming up. There's going to be a lot of talk about Bitcoin there. Uh, companies advertising their ETFs all over the place. So it's going to be an exciting year in Bitcoin. It was already an exciting year last year. Guys, uh, an honor to be here with you in the rabbit hole. Uh, let's keep going. 2024 is going to be amazing. Thanks for joining. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Brady. Right. Thanks, Preston. All right. Thanks. So don't forget to go to PacificBitcoin.com. And grab your tickets for PB. It'll happen later in the fall this year, um, looking at uh, October again. So join us in Santa Monica, California for what I think is the most fun Bitcoin conference. That's why we call it a, a festival and not a conference. It's going to be bigger and better this year than ever, but we'll maintain that nice intimate feel that uh, we all enjoy at the conference. Those tickets, of course, will just increase in price uh, throughout the year. They are refundable up until I think April. Uh, and there's so basically there's zero risk for you to grab your ticket now and uh, join us. It's going to be a fantastic time. Thank you to Marathon for sponsoring this episode. And thank you for joining me. This was a lot of fun to be back on Swan Signal Live hosting the show. I think I'll probably do these quarterly reports uh, for the rest of the year with Preston and Sam. So you can watch out for me every few months popping in the host chair here. Thanks for joining us. Have a great day.